Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Uh, tonight, we're going to start uh, on Iran, because Iran uh, seems to be at the center of a lot of what's going on at the moment. A uh, flurry of diplomatic activity in Israel uh, and elsewhere. Uh, what's going on in Lebanon, what's going on with Hamas, what's going elsewhere in the region. Uh, so let's uh, dive straight into it. First of all, uh, we spoke last week about uh, how we would see the new uh, president of Iran's uh, policies based on uh, what sort of uh, people he uh, appoints to the cabinet. And you know, we, we said it could go either way if you'll go for the previous, uh, some of the members of the previous cabinet, especially those who were involved in the JCPO, uh, JCPOA uh, Iran nuclear talks, uh, which was considered more moderate, or whether he'll pick up some of the leftovers from the Ahmadinejad regime, which is, as we know, uh, populated by ultra radicals. Um, and it certainly seems as if he's moved towards the latter. There seems to be some very problematic uh, elements, uh, some real ultra-radicals, uh, some leftovers from the Ahmadinejad uh, regime, an interior minister that is wanted for his role in the bombing of the uh, uh, Jewish center in Argentina many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, again, if we just look at some of the appointments so far, I don't think we have a full cabinet yet. And obviously it has to be, has to go through the parliament and obviously the Supreme Leader has to sign off on it. But uh, it definitely doesn't bode well for uh, the West, for the US, for return to the JCPOA. Uh, the sounds that we've had coming out of Iran ever since the ascendancy of the new president has not been particularly positive for engagement and some sort of return to positive talks uh, in Vienna. And I think the appointments would also send another signal that this is a government that will be extremely hard uh, to tolerate it in the West. There are no, so far, any faces that can sort of, you know, uh, be shown to the West as someone that they can deal with. Uh, we haven't seen any of that so far. Um, and it doesn't seem that that's the direction that they're uh, going in. Uh, as we know, one of uh, Iran's tentacles in the region, probably its strongest, arguably with the Houthis in Yemen, is Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, we talked last week a little bit how Lebanon is in real trouble, economic, socially, politically, diplomatically. Uh, apparently electricity is down to an hour or two a day throughout the country. Massive inflation. Uh, there's been even... Uh, remarkably or not, uh, not, not completely unprecedented, but the leading Christian uh, Maronite leader in Lebanon came out openly against Hezbollah and already predictably he has faced uh, uh, death threats. Uh, but what we have seen, what we saw uh, earlier in the week is uh, in response to a barrage of rockets uh, ostensibly sent over by Palestinian groups. Again, as I mentioned last week, uh, while it may have been Palestinian uh, armed groups, it was from an area very heavily controlled by Hezbollah, so it's doubtful whether these groups would take any action, especially 
uh, as vociferous as this, uh, shooting over the border into Israel, into northern Israel, without the okay and the say-so from Hezbollah. Uh, as we talked about last week, maybe that was you know, Hezbollah's way of sending a message without uh, blatantly and openly doing that. Israel's response uh, was relatively robust. Uh, first time that it had launched so many attacks into Lebanon, uh, probably since uh, the war in 2006, 2006. Um, and then we had, I mean, the, the, uh, mostly targeted some of the rocket sites and open areas and Hezbollah likewise targeted Israel and made a big statement about also targeting uh, open areas. They said that uh, our response, this is what Hezbollah said, our response will be proportionate to the Israelis. And Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of uh, the, the Hezbollah terrorist organization, uh, gave a speech that was actually planned a while in advance uh, to commemorate, from their point of view, the, uh, the Second Lebanon War. Again, you know, the, these sort of occasions always used for saber rattling, uh, to try and show off to the Lebanese people how they are protecting them, but also uh, interestingly spoke about the response and said that, you know, we're not looking for a war. Uh, we're looking for just a proportionate response, uh, but we're not looking for escalation, but we are ready for one. Those words were almost echoed completely by uh, the Israeli Northern Command, the IDF, uh, Northern Command, I should say, uh, that basically said also, we're not interested in the war, we're not interested in escalation, but we're ready to do, we're ready for one. Uh, what is interesting is that quite a few players in the region have alluded to Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's uh, words that he made a few weeks ago uh, relating to Hamas, where he said, uh, our enemies should know that the rules of the game have changed. And we actually did see in Gaza, when we started to see these, um, these explosive balloons coming over the border again, and setting fire to uh, quite a lot of uh, hectareage or dunams of uh, Israeli fields in the south, uh, we actually saw a, a far greater response than we've seen in many years uh, to these attacks. Um, and that seemed to quieten things down. What Israel has been doing ever since is trying to sort of do this carrot and stick. It's trying to show that if there will be any attacks, then it will certainly use the stick, either in a disproportionate response, uh, if you will, and uh, taking certain measures, but not letting in uh, trucks of certain materials, and limiting uh, the, the area that Palestinian Gazan fishermen uh, can, can fish in those waters. That's a tactic which successive Israeli governments have used for a while. Um, sometimes it's up to as, as much as 18 kilometers from the coast. Sometimes it's down to as few as six. And again, that's, uh, that's been used uh, as the sort of carrot and stick. Um, uh, also in the region today, uh, two very interesting guests um, Israel had was the uh, CIA, the head of the CIA, William Burns, who came to the region. Um, again, he's one of those officials, and I'll talk about the other one again. Uh, for Israel, it's all about Iran. For some of the uh, other officials who are coming to visit Israel, they also want to talk about Palestinians. And interestingly, he went over to Ramallah to meet with uh, Palestinian uh, leader Mahmoud Abbas after. Uh, I would argue, not necessarily coincidentally, at around the same time, Israel uh, announced uh, two very interesting developments. Uh, one is that quite unprecedentedly, uh, Israel is going to agree to build a thousand units uh, for the Palestinians or allow the Palestinian Authority to build a thousand units in Area C. Now, Area C is one of the three areas that were created in the Oslo, of course, there was Area A, which is under full 
Palestinian control, which is where 95% or something like that, the Palestinian, uh, Palestinians live, they have uh, full control over their own lives. It's run by the Palestinian Authority, Palestinian Authority courts, uh, taxation, et cetera, et cetera. Area B is uh, mixed, where you'll find mostly, well, solely uh, Palestinians. And it's under, again, Palestinian civil uh, rule, but it's under Israeli military uh, control. In other words, that Israel has, uh, the IDF has a free hand in these areas. Usually they are close to um, uh, Israeli settlements, Israeli uh, uh, communities over the Green Line. And then there's Area C, which is the majority of the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. And it's where all of the uh, Israeli communities, the so-called settlements are. Uh, there are a few Palestinians who live there, um, but over the years, it's been very difficult for them to be able to build. Um, much of what they are doing is illegal, uh, sometimes even buttressed and supported by actors such as the EU, which again is in contravention of the Oslo Accords, which they themselves witnessed and were party to in subsequent agreements. Uh, so for the first time, uh, in, in memory, I think maybe ever, Israel has agreed to build Palestinian units. It's probably, uh, as I said, not, not completely coincidentally, when William Burns has come, a very high level official in the Biden administration, probably uh, wanted to try and bolster the Palestinian Authority and the fact that he went and he was greeted uh, by the Palestinians. You saw a very positive atmosphere, far different from the atmosphere under the, the Trump administration. Uh, as I said, probably not coincidentally, and probably as a trade-off at the same time, uh, the Israeli government uh, released uh, the fact that they're going to be also building 2,000 new units uh, in the Israeli communities, the so-called settlements, uh, at the same time. So that was probably a trade-off that William Burns brought with him, probably to try and appease the Palestinians. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett gets something of what he wants, uh, something perhaps he doesn't want, but also within the government, it will become a lot more palatable because don't forget they have uh, far left parties and even a narrow party. So for them to release uh, the details that they're going to be allowing 2000 uh, new units built in the settlements, uh, the fact that it was offset with uh, by 1000 Palestinian units probably quietened any voices that otherwise would have uh, perhaps uh, made trouble. Another interesting uh, visitor the last few days was the undersecretary uh, of State for Political Affairs in the Foreign Ministry of Bahrain. Uh, it was actually quite a successful trip, an interesting trip. I signed a lot of MOUs with different think tanks. Uh, interestingly, went for a deep sea dive. Apparently, he's a big fan of deep sea diving uh, by Roshan Ikra, which is the furthest north in Israel you can go, which uh, in some anti-Israel elements around the, let's say, Muslim world was obviously castigated. Uh, but interestingly enough, he made very positive comments that for him, the JCPOA uh, is also a big problem. Uh, it's acted against peace and security in the region, and it's something which uh, they are unhappy about. He then mollified those words later in an interview with the Jerusalem Post, said that um, you know they're looking, they're not looking to not necessarily go back to JCPOA, but they want it to be longer and stronger. These are some of the words that have been used by certain diplomats around the region uh, because of the worry uh, that uh, Iran is. Uh, going to use the JCPOA or the stalling towards an agreement to try and enrich more and more uranium, get more and more knowledge towards <clears throat> nuclear weapons capability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he also um, had to put in a comment that uh, for him, the Palestinian issue is still at the forefront. Um, interestingly, also on the same day, um, 
Foreign Minister Yelopet was greeted in Rabat in uh, Morocco, the first uh, foreign minister and senior Israeli minister for, I believe, 20 years to arrive in Morocco. He's going to be opening, uh, not necessarily an embassy at this point, it seems. Uh, but the fact is, uh, from those uh, who I spoke to who on that trip, whether they're journalists or part of Lapid's party, they seem to be extremely warmly received. Uh, there were worries that Morocco wouldn't necessarily go the same way as UAE and Bahrain would be more of a sort of top-down, um, uh, you know, sort of, it would be a warmth at the highest levels, not necessarily from others. Uh, but so far, the trip has gone uh, pretty well. In domestic politics, and moving on quickly in the last few minutes before I move over to question and answers, uh, the Knesset uh, is now um, on vacation. So there's obviously, a, you know, the, the tone has, has been lowered uh, over the last few days. But uh, in Israel, the biggest talk of the news is the coronavirus and whether the government is doing enough to lower the figures. Israel is the first country in the world, and I believe one of the only uh, two who have already administered uh, a third dose of the vaccine to those over 60 years old or 65, uh, in the hope that they can uh, stop what is uh, increasingly uh, uh, raising numbers every single day. I think we got up to 6,000 uh, a couple of days ago. And there is a worry that we could go into another lockdown. And as you can imagine, people like uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of the opposition, has tried to make quite a lot of hair out of this, said, you know, I left Naftali Bennett in almost zero cases a day, and the country was open. And now within a, a few weeks, uh, they've gone uh, to the verge of another lockdown. Obviously, that's unfair because the Delta virus, first of all, had already been in the country during the Netanyahu uh, administration. And as we can see in the US and other places, the Delta variant has nothing to do with politics and it's spreading uh, in many places around the world. So in Israel is no different. And certainly the numbers going up, uh, people are very worried about this. Um, Israel is trying to, this is the message that has been sent by this government, trying to do everything to ensure that there will be no more uh, lockdowns. Uh, Finance Minister Victor Lehman came out and said that uh, uh, lockdowns don't necessarily lower the uh, number of people infected, but we do know that it hurts the economy. So. There's a lot of individuals in that government who are certainly anti-lockdown um, and they're trying everything to prevent that. So they're taking pretty much today and tomorrow the last possible measures to try and prevent a lockdown, which either will be at the end of August, remembering that September 1st is the beginning of the school year, and throughout September are the Jewish uh, holidays of New Year, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Um, and uh, some are saying that that should be when there's a lockdown, if there's going to be one, because there's only six or seven working days throughout the whole month. But obviously, as you can imagine, some of the religious elements, especially the ultra-Orthodox, are basically saying, you know, they shouldn't harm our festivals, and uh, considering everything else that's going on, and considering what's going on in the last year, this is the last time that you should choose. You should try and do it now or later, but not harm uh, the Jewish festival. So there's Quite a lot to think about uh, on that uh, particular level, because that seems to be where most uh, of the attention in Israel is going at this point. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on this or other subjects. All right, thank you so much. The first question we have in is from Kerry. Uh, to what extent did the events in Lebanon have, on, have an effect on the Israeli internal affairs? Um, well, you know, it, 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 certainly at the highest levels, everyone's watching what's going on in Lebanon, as many other countries around the world. 
Defence Minister Benny Gantz came out and said uh, some interesting comments saying, you know, you know, don't use us as an excuse, which is something we've talked about before, which is fairly obvious that Hezbollah trying to distract and deflect uh, from internal problems in Lebanon to try and attack Israel and try to de deflect and distract uh, the Lebanese population and trying to gain in popularity, as we, we spoke about last week, they're certainly suffering uh, on that particular level in Lebanon at the moment. Uh, and Benny Gantz also said that, you know, he seeks an international assistance plan for Lebanon. A lot of other countries obviously have talked about that. But what he said was interesting is that Israel would be happy to be involved in any way and give any sort of assistance. Now we know that's extremely, extremely unlikely. Uh, but sometimes these things still need to be said. Today, there were meetings uh, with UNIFIL, which is the UN mandated uh, mission that's supposed to uh, watch over the implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 1701, which is supposed to demilitarize uh, the whole of Southern Lebanon, uh, I think below the Litani River, if I'm not much mistaken. And it's clear that that's the furthest thing that's actually happening. Um, but there was, this was supposed to be a routine meeting between Israeli army officials and uh, UNIFIL. Uh, but again, as we've seen ever since the Second Lebanon War, UNIFIL pretty much doesn't really do anything in a robust manner. Uh, sometimes it does give information about what they see, but uh, not too much else. But uh, again, another sign that uh, Israel wants to send to the international community that it doesn't seek an escalation. And uh, the fact is that Hezbollah are... Uh, still very much have a very strong military presence and probably gave them a warning that, uh, you know, we'll not sit on our hands next time this happens. Thank you. So you just mentioned that Hezbollah has a very strong military presence. Uh, Carrie Hildebrand asks, Hildebrand, uh, with the accelerating, accelerating meltdown of Lebanon, is there any evidence of cracks developing within Hezbollah? Within Hezbollah, there doesn't seem to be, uh, but definitely they are, they are losing supply. As I said, the fact that uh, the leader of the Christian community, I believe it's the Archbishop, who came out openly against Hezbollah shows a certain amount of their popularity is waning. I mean, obviously many Christians are not the biggest fan of Hezbollah, uh, but the fact that he could openly come out and make these comments, even though then he received death threats, um, shows the waning popularity of Hezbollah, maybe a lack of control from Hezbollah. A lot of people blame them uh, for the explosion in the port of Beirut last year, uh, for the um, for some of the, you know, I wouldn't say civil war, but certainly some of the factions that have been fighting uh, within Lebanon. And the fact is, uh, I think we mentioned it last time, that uh, some Hezbollah operatives who were shooting from near a Druze village were attacked arrested and then handed over to the Lebanese army. There's been a backlash on the Jewish community uh, from within Shiite uh, strongholds as a result of that, but it's clear that Hezbollah do not have that aura of invincibility that maybe they once had. And people, a lot of people in Lebanon are pointing fingers at Hezbollah as at least a major part of the uh, problems that the country is facing currently. Thank you from an anonymous viewers. Uh, based on the makeup of the new governing coalition, some observers expected the new Israeli government to be more dovish vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Uh, however, recent comments by various members of the government have sounded quite hawkish. Is the new government, in your view, more willing to act aggressively against Iran compared to pr the prior government or less? I should say on the Iranian issue, um, it's not as split as the Palestinian issue. You know, you have everyone from the 
let's say, mainstream left uh, all the way to the far right, who believes in a robust response. Uh, the, you know, the, the words that come out of Yale Lapid's mouth, Tony Bennett's mouth, uh, even some more left-wing elements uh, is not that different from what uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he was prime minister, would have said. There is a relative consensus, I would say relative, because obviously not, it's, it's not uh, unanimous, uh, that Israel you know, has to be able to take action against Iran if it believes that it is getting closer and closer to nuclear weapons uh, capability. Um, even you had um, uh, Minister of Regional Cooperation, Isaura Jafraj, who is of the Merits Party, an Arab, the first Arab minister in a, a while, I believe, um, who has been speaking a lot to his uh, uh, partners in the region, whether it's uh, UAE, Bahrain, and he even admitted Saudi Arabia. We're working very closely with them on the Iranian issue. So when you have a member of Merits, an Arab minister of Merits, uh, talking about Iran, shows that even on those elements, it's, it's, a, it's a major problem. So as Naftali Bennett said on many of these issues, we're certainly not going to be any more left-wing than the previous administration. And so far in Iran, uh, it's been pretty robust uh, talk. And, and no little action, I'm sure, behind the scenes. Thank you. And um, Isaac Cohen asks, President Biden has been pretty appeasing uh, Iran by eliminating a series of sanctions. Uh, but now with the new president, will Biden be the American Chamberlain? The, he states that the breakout is about nine weeks away for assembling the nuclear bomb. Um, will Israel and, and Biden's, sorry, I'm trying to paraphrase, and Biden has been pressuring Israel not to attack. Will Israel do it alone? Does it have the military capability to withstand thousands of rocket attacks from Hezbollah in the north, Hamas in the south, and Iran precisely uh, targeted rockets? First of all, I think we should be clear, um, Iran is not weeks away from a nuclear bomb. Iran is uh, perhaps, and I think uh, I mentioned last week, Benny Gantz, defense minister, talked about 10 weeks from having weapons grade uh, nuclear material. That's still a certain amount of way uh, from actually having a nuclear bomb, because then you have to have the technology to, for payload and for missile and, and all the rest. Again, it's not, it's not to belittle and not to make light of the situation. They are moving very, very quickly towards on, on multiple fronts towards uh, nuclear weapons capability, but they're not nine weeks away from a bomb. Um, what we are hearing uh, from the Americans is they want to relieve some of the sanctions for a complete cessation of the enrichment uh, level. Um, Iran is standing firm so far, it says uh, that we will not even talk uh, about uh, stopping or ceasing enrichment levels or returning to the JCPOA until there is a complete lack, uh, lifting of sanctions. That is the message that's come out of Tehran. And I'm sure the new president will certainly be no more dovish on this than his predecessors. Um, so we're going to have to wait and see. It does seem that the Americans want to return to the JCPOA. Uh, the jury is certainly out on whether the Iranians are even going to return to Vienna at the moment. There seems to be a bit of a lull. Perhaps a lot are, as I said, waiting to see what happens with this new Iranian government. Who are the major players? who is going to be the face uh, of the talks, who's going to be the face for the West. But so far, I think most uh, people who look at Iran would just be pessimistic about this. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Aviva Klein-Frank asks, do you think the Arab party and the coalition will bind Israel's hands to react militarily in Lebanon? Well, so far, so far hasn't. Uh, Israel, as I said, did react stronger than it has 
for six, 15 years uh, since the Second Lebanon War. Um, don't forget, you know, uh, uh, the, the Arab party, as, as we've spoken about before, uh, you know, it's, it's a small party. It's certainly in a 61 seat government is, is absolutely essential, but there's an understanding uh, that Lebanon, uh, that Hezbollah is a problematic player. Don't forget there's other elements of the Sunni Shiite rivalry. Uh, there's a lot of Arab towns in the north that could come under attack uh, from Hezbollah. So I don't see it necessarily as bind, uh, binding the hands because any more, again, than the previous government, because the previous government didn't take such robust action when it had a so-called right-wing government. Um, but as I said, I think at the end of the day, I go back to my first, uh, earlier comments where neither side really seeks an escalation. It could be that one side will make an error calculation. Uh, someone will die on either side, and that will certainly uh, lead, could lead to an escalation. There's certainly tension there, but it's clear that neither side uh, wants an escalation at this point. And I don't think that's necessarily down to the fact that there's an our party in the uh, coalition. Thank you. Mir Herzl Melmid asks, is there any sign that the American abandonment of Afghanistan is bringing some Arab countries closer to Israel, as it seems America is an unreliable ally? Um, there's always uh, a certain amount of, you know, people watching all around the world uh, certainly look at what America is doing in one arena, especially uh, the sort of, let's say, joint enemies of uh, the US, Israel and the wider West. Uh, to see what they think of as weakness, what they think of as strength. Um, it's too early to say at this point, but certainly, you know, a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, you know, last time they took over, we saw it as a base for Al-Qaeda, uh, which is obviously was, well, it's still around, uh, but obviously not as powerful as it was when it uh, was given free reign in Afghanistan, um, that it could certainly be a problematic base of operations for certain rogue and terrorist uh, regimes, which while Israel is not necessarily the, the, the first enemy of many of these groups, it's certainly on the list. So remains to be seen, uh, American weakness or perceived, let's say perceived American weakness uh, is, is never necessarily good for Israel, uh, but we are dealing in a different era. We do see more and more Arab countries, Sunni pragmatic countries who are coming towards Israel because of their joint enemies. Uh, so we are living in a different reality to when uh, the Taliban last uh, ruled Afghanistan. So along those lines, this might be reaching out of the wheelhouse here. Uh, Robert Larrick asks, do you think Russia should really want an empowered Islamic terrorist state, uh, Iran and perhaps the Taliban in Afghanistan with nuclear umbrella, with control of the Mediterranean and its underbelly to radicalize more states and people? Oh, good question. I do have some friends who actually would be expertise in this area, but I'm going to leave that for some of those. There are some excellent papers that are coming out on this subject, but that's outside of my area of expertise. So I'm going to leave that one for, for others to answer. All right, wonderful. And uh, in our last few minutes here, Carrie Hildebrand asks, uh, upwards of a million eligible Israeli citizens remain unvaccinated. Why isn't the government more proactive in promoting or pressuring them to be vaccinated? In the United States here, I can, <laughs> we have the same problem. Right, so uh, the fact that after, what is it, uh, eight, nine months of the vaccination program, the fact that there are still a million holdouts and eligible 
uh, Israelis, and they've tried everything from the carrot, the stick, incentives. They're talking about allowing them to enter into a lottery where they could win a lot of money. Uh, the fact is now they're lowering their uh, the ability of the unvaccinated to go to any public events, whether it's the cinema, whether it's the swimming pool, whether it's the gym, whether it's uh, concerts or, or whatever it may be, sporting events. Uh, they're really trying to push as many as possible. There is a disproportionate amount uh, in the Arab community. So there is some effort to try and convince uh, in the Arab community and to a lesser extent in the ultra-Orthodox community uh, to vaccinate. Uh, but when you have people who are ideologically against it, again, not all of those million will be ideologically against it. There's a certain amount of 12 to 16 year olds who we've talked about in the past, they believe that they, you know, like all kids around the world, believe that they're invincible. Why do they need this? They, they, you know, they, they can't be bothered or whatever it is. Um, so they don't do it, but there has been many efforts. They put a lot of money in uh, to try and convince uh, these, these million uh, to get vaccinated. But uh, we see drips and drabs every day, a few thousand here and there. That could also be people who are turning 12 as well or, or other reasons. Um, but uh, short of forcing in order to get a vaccine, there's nothing really you can do either here, the US or elsewhere. Everyone is dealing with the same issue. How do you convince, cajole, uh, incentivize, whatever it may be, uh, those who remain unvaccinated to get uh, the shot? Um, Israel is struggling with it as much as anyone else, but we've gone uh, another layer and vaccinated the over 60s. And they're talking about tonight, Ayala Sheked, interior minister, has actually suggested that it now be lowered to uh, the uh, 40 and over. Uh, so we'll see a lot more Israelis uh, who will have the third jab, uh, which so far, according to tests that have been released, actually does have an effect and does raise the immunization immunity levels, or that's probably not the right word, but uh, raises the levels uh, to what they were at the beginning after some of these people received the second jab. All right, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update thank us you. this week. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday for a webinar with Ali Alflene discussing Iran's crisis. What's next? Which options? Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.